Now, this morning, we want to begin a new series of messages on a pulse check on the church. And we're going to be looking at Revelations chapter 2 and 3 over these next uh, seven Sundays leading up to Easter. Uh, Then we'll probably wrap it up a little bit after Easter. But uh, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2, the passage of Scripture that was read for us. And uh, we're going to dig into this passage and see what the Lord Jesus has to say about the church that he purchased with his own blood. Uh, Jesus cares deeply for the church. I hope you understand this. Uh, The church is not uh, something that is uh, not on his mind continually. He loves the church. He purchased the church. He laid down his life for the church. And so uh, as we take a look at uh, these passages, we begin to understand how uh, God works in his church and how he walks among uh, the people in the church And let's ask the Holy Spirit to open our minds to God's truth today. Father, uh, it's so good to be in your presence, so good to be together, so good to be able to lift our hearts in worship and in praise. Lord, we look forward to that time when we will see you face to face. But until that moment, I pray that you would help us to be cultivating a heart for you, that you would deepen our desire to know you and to live for you with all of our hearts. Uh, Speak to us, Lord, as we go through this series of messages, as we begin to understand how you're at work in various situations and in various uh, contexts of ministry. Oh, Lord, speak to our hearts, I pray, in your mighty name. Amen. In the 21st century, uh, consulting has become a, a big business. Uh, There are more than 400 to 500,000 consultants that uh, want to help us, that want to help us to solve our problems and to come up with solutions that maybe we uh, have not been able to come up with. We have all kinds. We have management consultants. We have financial consultants. We have fashion and color consultants. We have dietary consultants political consultants, wedding consultants, as well as church consultants. And I could go on and on and on. We live in a world where consulting is really a big deal. Now, consultants are usually hired for a couple of purposes. Number one, they're hired to find out what the problem is, not just to find out what the problem is, but then also to figure out a plan to Uh, deal with the problem so that uh, the church, the the commodity or whatever that they're seeking to consult uh, continues to uh, be strong and and vibrant. Now, it's very interesting that in Revelation chapter 2, we discover that Jesus, who is the Lord of the lampstands, is the ultimate consultant. And in these chapters, he does a pulse check on each of the seven churches, beginning with the church at Ephesus. The late Dr. John Stott, in his intriguing book, What Christ Thinks of the Church, makes this observation, quote, what Christ thinks of the church is a question which no professing Christian can afford to ignore. What Christians think of it from the inside and what unbelievers think of it from the outside are both important subjects, 
for consideration. But far more significant is the opinion of Jesus Christ himself, the church's founder and Lord, unquote. We need to understand what he thinks about the church, the body of Christ. And here in Revelation, we're given insight into what the Lord of the lampstands thinks of his church. Christ alone has the right to evaluate his church, not the skeptics, not the agnostics, not the critics. Christ alone has the right to evaluate the church because he purchased the church with his own blood, and he promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Christ, as the head of the church, is the source of the church's power and life. Moreover, don't let this get by you too quickly this morning. He knows all about the church. He has complete knowledge of everything that's going on in the body of Christ. He knows its priorities, its practices, its programs. He knows everything about the church because he is the head and he is the ultimate consultant. It's very interesting as you work through these two chapters. Uh, he makes it very clear that he knows everything about the church. For example, to the Ephesians, he writes in chapter 2 and verse 2, I know your deeds. To Smyrna, he writes in chapter 2 and verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. To Pergamum, he writes in chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you live. To Thyatira, he writes in 2.19, I know your deeds. To Sardis, he writes, I know your deeds in chapter 3, verse 1. To Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 8, I know your deeds. To Laodicea in chapter 3 and verse 15, I know your deeds. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the lampstands, and he holds, notice, the seven stars in his right hand. Now, you will observe that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. In short, these angels are the messengers of the pastors who bring the Lord's message to his church. This tells us, first of all, that pastors are under the authority of the Lord of the lampstands, and he exercises authority over those who he has committed to communicate his message. Notice the phrase there, his right hand, notice it says, <clears throat> he holds the seven stars in his right hand. That right hand speaks of his almightiness, his majesty and power. All those who are leading his church are under his authority, they answer to him. Not only does he know all about the messengers in the church, but you'll also notice that he walks among the churches. Literally, it means he's in the middle of each of these seven golden lampstands or churches, which he is about to address individually and personally. He scrutinizes the church. The Lord of the Lampstands has inside information about churches. And I believe that 21st century churches need to be conscious of the fact that God is still present in the church. And he knows everything that goes on in the church. And many of us 
fail to realize this, that whenever the body of Christ meets together, the Lord of the lampstands is walking among us. He knows every conversation. He knows what we're talking about in the lobby. He knows what happens out in the parking lot. There's not anything that occurs that he is unaware of. And we need to be conscious of the fact that the Lord Jesus not only walks among these seven churches, but he walks among the churches of today. Now, it's significant that John describes these seven churches symbolically as lampstands. Lamps are made to give out light. Christ calls his church to be light bearers. And these churches, each one of them was planted in a very pagan area to give out the light of the gospel to the world. But lamps need to be clean. They need to have their wicks trimmed from time to time to have their oil supply renewed. And this is what Christ proceeds to do. He assesses the church's performance. Don't let this get by you too quickly. The Lord of the lampstands knows everything about us and he has the ability, he has the prerogative to give us his take on what's happening in his church. We must remember that during this time, uh, when this was written by the Apostle John, uh, these were actual local churches that existed during the time Rome was in control of Asia Minor. However, we should not limit to what is said about that church, those churches to that particular time period. Revelation speaks in symbolic language, and the seven churches not only represent these seven specific local congregations, but they represent a variety of conditions that exist in all churches of all ages across all lands. And the message of Christ to his church is as relevant to us today as it was when it was originally given those many years ago by the Apostle John. Now, the first church our Lord addresses is the church at Ephesus. Ephesus in ancient history was known as the metropolis of Asia. It had a population of over 300,000 individuals. It was the capital of the Roman province. Ephesus is the cultural, commercial, and religious center of Asia. It's very interesting that this church is planted right in the midst of a bustling, busy city. It's also a very sensuous city and an immoral city. Indeed, the great temple of Diana, uh, which at that time was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world, was present and is in the very center of that city. It was four times the size of the Parthenon. The temple was lavishly adorned and supported by 127 marble pillars, 36 overlaid with gold and Jews. And the temple of Diana was the focus point of that city because people worshiped Diana. They worshiped this pagan deity. Now, you'll remember that Paul was forbidden to speak the word of God in Asia on his second missionary journey. But, a time, but upon his return to Jerusalem, he does pass through Ephesus briefly. 
But on his third missionary journey, if you study the book of Acts, you discover that he heads straight to Ephesus, and he spends more time in Ephesus than in any other city. He spent at least three years in that place. And so a growing and a flourishing ministry was established and begins to flourish. On the other hand, you'll remember that it was pretty difficult to have a Christian witness in that pagan city. You'll remember there was a great uproar by the silversmiths who were angry that the gospel had caused a great drop in their sale of silver models of Diana's temple. Uh, They had been making all kinds of uh, income uh, because they were promoting the goddess. But when people turned to Christ, they turned away from that pagan worship, and those guys took a hit in their businesses. And you'll remember Paul was actually forced to leave town, but before he goes, he commissions Timothy to stay behind and supervise the church at Ephesus and provide it with leadership uh, in his absence. The pastoral epistles are written by Paul to Timothy from a Roman prison to encourage him in this difficult ministry that he has to take care of this church that was planted by the Apostle Paul and at at this time seemingly is flourishing. Now, I believe we need to take a good hard look at what Christ, the Lord of the lampstands, thinks of this Ephesian congregation. There are three phases in his evaluation. And keep your Bibles open because it's so important that you follow along in the scriptures because uh, he spells it out very succinctly. First of all, Christ commends the church. You see this in verses 2 and 3. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. So he starts out his evaluation by commending the church. Ephesus, number one, is a working church. He says, I know your deeds. Ephesus was a church that was a beehive of activity. The 80-20% rule did not apply to them. No, no. 20% didn't do 80% of the church's work at Ephesus. To the contrary, they had volunteers. They had no shortages. Many surmise that every member in that church at Ephesus was involved in some kind of a spiritual capacity, either entertaining the lonely, nursing the sick, teaching the word, visiting the aged. And as Hobbes observes in his commentary, he says that that Ephesus was a beehive of activity. There was a lot of good stuff going on at this particular church. It is a working church. Number two, verse two, he not only compliments them that they are a working church, but notice they are a laboring church. I know your hard work. And that phrase, hard work, speaks to the fact that there is intense labor going on that is coupled with trouble. In other words, they are working, they are laboring, but they are facing so much opposition that it is literally sucking the life out of them. 
You see, see, when we're, we're serving the Lord and, and we're doing it in difficult situations, uh, it, it sucks all the, the energy in. And he's saying such work is strenuous and exhausting. And oftentimes that exhaustion leads to fatigue and weakness. But at Ephesus, notice the church is commended not only for expending themselves in laborious service, but also for, notice, not growing weary in verse 3. You have not grown weary. They have been expending themselves. They're working hard. They're laboring. They're not wearing out. They're not fatigued. God's using them in significant ways. They are expending a lot of energy for the cause of Jesus Christ. When we serve the Lord, it takes something out of us. It saps our very life and our strength. But the Ephesians are serving in spite of all this, and Paul commends them. Number three, Ephesus is an enduring church. He commends them for, notice, their perseverance. Your perseverance there in verse two. I know that you can, uh, I know that, uh, uh, I know about your perseverance. He's talking about their steadfastness. In other words, they were so committed to the Lord Jesus Christ that no matter what came against them, they stand firm in their loyalty to Jesus Christ. They were staunch in their steadfastness. They did not allow the culture to impact them. And no doubt there was great pressure that was brought against these early believers uh, who had turned their back on the worship of the fertility goddess uh, Diana, and they paid a price for that. Uh, they paid a price for their loyalty to Christ. They knew what it meant to be hated and to be snubbed. They knew what it meant to be forced out of business because of their faith in Christ. But Ephesus is an enduring church because they refuse to compromise. They hang on to that faith that they had placed in the Lord Jesus. And number four, he commends them. He says, you are a discerning church. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, but you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Now, that word tested literally means to be put to the test. And evidently, there were some in the Ephesian church who claimed to be Christ followers but in reality, they were false teachers. And John the Beloved here in verse 6, notice, identifies them. He says, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans were introducing evil practices in the church, proclaiming that freedom from the law of God allows them to do whatever they want to do. And they celebrated immorality. These Nicolaitans were sensuous and immoral teachers. They advocated all kinds of promiscuity in the name of the gospel. In our world today, they would be the advocates of free love and open marriage and try to sound spiritual in the process. In fact, one of the, the big things that now we have to deal with, even in the evangelical circles, are threesomes. People who believe that they can have that kind of a relationship and still walk with Jesus. Well, that's nothing new. We're facing it in our generation and 
Jesus exposes it, and he says, you didn't go along with that. You had discernment. Ephesians don't go along with all of that false teaching that these uh, Nicolaitans were saying. And to their credit, they had not been deceived. They heed the advice of John in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 when John writes, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are false prophets who claim to be gospel preachers today that are phony to the core. And we have to be alert and awake to these kinds of things. We cannot let the enemy slip error in the side door. Ephesians are commended. They they possess this rare gift of discernment. They know what is of God and what is not of God. And notice they are commended because in verse 6 of chapter 2, they hate these practices. They don't hate the people. They don't hate the Nicolaitans, but they hate their practices. And again, this is a pretty good understanding for us as we deal with people that are on the fringe or who are seeking to distract from the church. We don't hate them. We hate their practices. We hate what they're seeking to do to, to disarm and to hurt the body of Christ. Now, on the surface, the Ephesian church seems like a wonderful church. Man, wouldn't you like to be part of this church? Oh, my, they are a a working church. They are a a busy church. They are an enduring church. They they don't have a weak backbone. They don't throw their faith overboard when the going gets tough. They're a discerning church. They don't let false teachers get the best of them. They're champions for the truth of the gospel. I mean, you would take a look at what Christ says about this church at this time, and you'd say, wow, this is a church I'd really like to be a part of. But then Paul, or excuse me, Jesus, after he commends the church, he challenges the church. And you see this in verse 4. Yet, notice, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. The Ephesian church seems to have everything going for it except first love. And the Lord of the lampstands the Lord that purchased the church with his own blood looks at this church straight in the eye and says, you have forsaken me. That word forsaken means to abandon. You have abandoned me. You've given up on me. You have abandoned your first love. And in the original, the word order is reversed. You could translate it this way. Your first love you have abandoned. In other words, the love that these people had for the Lord Jesus when they first put their faith and trust in him has now become cold. They're just going through the motions. It's just become routine. There's not any real love in their heart for Jesus that there once was when they had first put their faith and their trust in him. They had become a beehive of activity but they were just going through the motions. It was just cold orthodoxy. They were a busy organization instead of a vital living organism. There is a world of difference between an organization that gets cold and is lifeless and the church that is to have this first love for Jesus where there is a sense of 
we're, we're alive in Christ and, and Christ is so real to us and we ooze Jesus and, and everything we do, it's about Jesus. The relationship of Christ to his church is pictured in God's word as the relationship between a husband and a wife. In 1 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3, the apostle writes to the Corinthian church, I am jealous of you with a godly jealous jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure, pure, pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the Spirit's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see, this can happen real quick. If we aren't nurturing ourselves in the word of God, that initial devotion and that loyalty that we had for Jesus, it becomes cold. We go through difficult situations and we, instead of drawing closer to Christ, we, we, we pull away from him. And this was the problem at Ephesus. I mean, here's a great church. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of this church? But Jesus, the Lord of the lampstand, says, one time you weren't deeply in love with me, but now you've abandoned me. You've fallen out of love with me. How can this be? How can it be that people who have been transformed by the grace of God could ever fall out of love with Jesus? Consequences of a lost love are great. When we lose our love for Jesus and our first love cools off, our love for one another diminishes. It's interesting when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians some 30 years before this assessment by Christ, he describes them in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 24 as those who love the Lord Jesus with an undying love. And in Ephesians 1.15, those who are known for their love for all the saints. 30 years previously, here was a church that was deeply in love with Jesus. They, they, were, they were on fire for God. They, they, they weren't cold and, and distant from him. They had a love that he describes as an undying love. But now, as the Lord of the Lampstands walks through the church... It's like entering a deep freeze. They worship, but their hearts are cold. They work, but not in harmony. They labor, but they do so grudgingly. They endured, but oftentimes with a critical spirit. They tested the false teachers, but with no real love. They forgot the words of Jesus. When he said in John chapter 13 and verse 35, he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, what happens? Whenever we get or grow cold in our relationship to Christ, we grow cold in our relationship to others. And even without realizing it, we become critical, complaining, fault-finding because we have left our first love. Churches in America today are dying because they have left their first love. Once flourishing congregations, I can point to you congregations that used to have two and three 
thousand people in their services or down to maybe 50. I know one church where I served in Indiana. One time was a church that was vibrant, touching that community. Well over 600 people in that church every Sunday loving Jesus today. They are a congregation of 12. They're a small group. What happens? You see, without really realizing it, if we don't keep on feeding this flame of a love for Jesus, our love for Christ can grow cold. And that's what he's concerned about. We cannot get into what I would call a spiritual coast. And far too many of us get into a spiritual coast where we just kind of go through the motions. We get up on Sunday and we, we do all the right things. We get all fixed up. We do our duty. We, we put in our hour and a half maybe and, and then we're done. But our love for Jesus, where is that? And he's, he's saying, without realizing what's happened, at one time, your love for me was blazing hot. But right now, something has happened. And when our love for Jesus is not strong and our love for others is not strong, we only start loving ourselves. And in the process, we become miserable, hypersensitive, and critical. This church had everything going for it. The one thing that mattered the most, their first love for Christ made them powerless, lifeless, and cold. Friends, we can be doing all the right things, saying all the right phrases, going through all the right motions, but if we've abandoned our first love for Jesus, it not only hurts Jesus, it hurts the kingdom of God. And today we need vital churches that are so deeply in love with Jesus that nothing else matters. That's the message of what Christ thinks of the church. Consultant can come in and say, hey, it's a pretty good church. And Jesus, he says, hey, I have this against you. You've left your first love. And so after he commends them and then challenges them, he counsels the church. He tells them how to fix this. Notice verses 5 and 7. He says, repent and do the first things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. How tragic that when we lose our first love, the body of Christ, instead of being an influencer for the kingdom, the light goes out. And we are living in a culture today where more churches are dying than are being birthed. 45 churches close every day in America. 90%, you've heard me say this before, of existing churches 
have either plateaued or are declining. Why? Many cases, we have left our first love. And so he gives this erratic church three strong commands. Number one, he says, I want you to remember, verse five, notice, remember the height from which you have fallen. Notice, they are not in the process of falling. They've already fallen out of love with Jesus, and they're experiencing the effects of having fallen out of love with him. See, memory is a, is a wonderful gift. And so Jesus says, I want you to remember. I, I want you to go back in time and remember that moment when you first encountered Jesus. And he changed your life and everything was brand new, and you were on fire. You wanted to share with everyone what Jesus had done in your life and the change. You were in love with him. You were in love with the word. You didn't have to be coaxed to come to church. You didn't have to be coaxed to come to Bible study. You just loved Jesus, and you loved... I want you to remember. Remember from where you have fallen councils of the church to remember their first love. What it was like to first be exposed to the gospel and then to decide to follow him. He's urging them to get back to those early days. You know, some of us have known the Lord for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Are you still deeply in love with Jesus? Do you still love him more than anything else? Or has our love just kind of become tepid and even cold? And so he challenges them to remember, I want you to wake up and realize how drastically your priorities have changed and how meaningless some of your prayers have become because you don't love Jesus anymore. See, he wants this church to break out of this rut of just going through the motions and kind of patting themselves on the back and saying, hey, we're a great church. He wants them to get back to their first love. Number two, first R, remember. Second R, notice, is repent. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Get back to the basics. Get back to doing things you know that are important to your spiritual well-being. See, we don't hear a lot about repentance today. Uh, we want to hear about good things. We, 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 we want to leave a service feeling real good. But what is repentance? Repentance is an about face. It's making a 180-degree turn. You're going one way when you repent, boink, you go the other way. <laughs> That's what it is. Repentance, it's a, it's a change of direction. And so he is challenging this church. Yes, I've, I've, uh, I've identified an area where you're weak, and now I want you to remember where you once were, but I not only want you to remember, I want you to repent of the fact that you have abandoned your first love. 
See, it's not enough just to be sorry for our sin. We need to forsake our sin and pursue righteousness. You see, a cold heart that doesn't love Jesus supremely is a sinful heart. A heart that is cold toward others is a sinful heart. He doesn't ask the Ephesians to feel bad about their spiritual failures. He commands them to repent and to turn back to loving Jesus with that first kind of love. I fear that many of us, myself included, we have no victory in our lives because we are so reticent to repent. We often feel sorry for ourselves that we have failed, that we have sinned, but we wait for some kind of a traumatic experience to occur before we really get right with God. Many, unfortunately, are like the child who falls into a mud puddle and waits for someone to pick him up. See, our our job is to repent and to forsake what we know is keeping us from experiencing the blessing of God. And the Bible says that when we repent, when we confess and acknowledge that we are wrong, and in this case, acknowledge that we have abandoned our first love and we ask him for his forgiveness. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we what? If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to? Oh, that was weak. He's faithful and just to? Forgive. Cleanse us. Get us back on the right track. Don't you like to get back on the right? Have you been on a, 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 these, these, uh, these little technology devices, what do we call them? Uh, uh, GPS. GPS oftentimes can lead you a wrong way. And I've had that happen. I end up in a cornfield. And it's wonderful to get back on the right road, isn't it? After you've been on the wrong road, it's good to get back on the right road. And that's what he's saying to these folks. I want you to get back on the right road. I want you to have that burning first love for Jesus that you once had. And then the third R is reactivate. Notice, I love this. He says, do the first, the things you did at first. In other words, I want you to get back on the right road. I want you to have this burning love for Jesus. Get your spiritual life back on track by loving me more than anything else. First love is the difference between a dying church and a dynamic church, between a church that is alert and a church that is asleep. And I've already mentioned this, that many churches today have had to close simply because they abandoned their first love. You go to Europe today. You go to the great cathedrals where Wesley and Calvin and all these guys preached, they're empty. There are mausoleums. People go over there as a tourist event. What happened to those churches? Many cases. They started to get so 
so focused on themselves, thinking about themselves and loving only themselves, and they fell out of love with Jesus. And today those churches are, are empty. It's one of the reasons why I love to see churches turn around. I love to see churches experience the power of Jesus in their lives once again. When we get our focus back on Jesus, it changes everything. Now notice, he gives the church an ultimatum. In verse 5, he says, remember, repent, reactivate your first love. Notice, or he says, I will remove you, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Whoa. It's pretty serious. He is saying that if we don't get back in that first love relationship with him, our influence is going to go bye-bye, and he's actually going to remove the lampstand, the church, from ministry. That's a scary thought, isn't it? To have all the resources of heaven at our disposal, to have everything going for us, Accept that first love for Jesus, and Jesus says, unless you get back on the right track, I may come. He's not talking about his second coming here. He's just saying, I'll come and I'll, I'll remove your witness. And unfortunately, I've seen too much of that. And it breaks my heart. Because Jesus loves the church. He loves the church. And he desires more than anything else that the church be in love with him. He wants the church to be on fire. He wants the church to experience the blessing of God, but that only happens as we return to that first love for Jesus. This first letter closes with an exhortation. He says, notice in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he also gives us a promise to overcome. To the one whose love and devotion remain strong and undiminished, what does the text say? He will inherit, he will eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I don't know about you, every time I go into this passage, the Holy Spirit, you know, kind of takes a stethoscope to my heart. Am I deeply in love with Jesus? Or has my love for him grown cold? Do people see Jesus in me or do they see a person who one time was really alive in Christ, but who has just gotten into a, what I would call a spiritual funk. We say all the right things. We do all the right things. We make sure that everybody knows that, you know, we come to church on Sunday and, we do all the things that we think God will take notice of. But the one thing he notices more than anything else is our love for him.
first love. How was it with you this morning? Are you deeply in love with Jesus? Is your love burning hot? Or has it become jaded? Maybe it's become even a little bit cold. And instead of loving Jesus and loving others, the only person you're thinking about is yourself. And you miss everything that God has for you. I don't know where you're all at this morning. I've had to do some real soul searching. You can't preach a message like this without having the Holy Spirit really work on you a little bit. And God has been working on me. And I know he's working on all of us. And I want us to leave here today with a rekindled love for Jesus. Let's stand for prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we come before you today recognizing that many times, for whatever reason, our love for you is not what it was at first. The cares of this life, the distractions of this life, the culture, has somehow eaten away at that first love. And, oh, yes, we identify with you, but it's, it's not a vibrant love. Lord, I pray if we need to return to that first love, that we will do so right now. That you will rekindle in our hearts a passion for you. Passion that knows no limit that it would not ever be said of East Bay Calvary Church that they abandoned their first love, but that we would be a body of believers that would fall deeply in love with you and keep on cultivating that love until one day we see you face to face. And so, Lord, this morning, as a body of believers, we ask you to reactivate that first love. We repent of our lack of love for you we ask you to change us and to set us ablaze with the love of Jesus thank you for your presence with us today thank you for how you're at work in each of our lives right now individually rekindling and re-stimulating us to love you more and more You are our king. You are our master. And you are our Lord. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen. Good morning and Maranatha. Lo, he comes. Have a great day in Jesus. God bless you.